Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to, I, I don't want to call it the final episode of the Summer Silly Season, but definitely getting towards the end. I mean, we might have ridiculous transfer. Actually, I know we're going to have ridiculous transfers happen in the next couple of weeks. So, like, it's just, we're not fully done with it. But for the most part, international tournaments are over. Sans the Olympics. So, and the coveted to- Gold Cup. Uh, sorry, I only talk about real tournaments on this podcast. I uh, I don't claim that one at all. But we, of course, are going to have to go over the Euros. We'll go over the Copa America later on in part two. Rian, we watched a lot of soccer together over the years. This one was probably top top three experience for me for a variety of very different reasons, but I'll get to it later. But before we even get to it, how's it, how's it, how's it going? Just how's life, man? Like I saw you yesterday, so I know how life is, but for the viewers. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Honestly. Um, busy, busy time. I think for both of us work-wise right now, July in general, but you know, we're only for a couple sure. of weeks away and then everyone goes off for their holidays uh in august so you know i honestly feel like the uh one the city is more or less you know back to 75 80 percent of what it would probably of what it would be like during a normal summer here the thing that has sucked a lot is the weather and granted, that's not just going to be here. That'll probably be the same for, you know, the entire world for the next however many decades until we actually start uh, doing something about it. <laughs> um, but specifically for this summer, like July 4th and Memorial Day weekends, both of them just rainy or humid or just like unbearably hot generally not enjoyable (laughs) yeah and especially the last like two or three weeks here it's been oscillating between super humid for two or three days which means i just don't really want to go outside and walk outside or do really anything out of my apartment um and then huge huge rainstorm or thunderstorm lightning everything um for like 12 to 18 hours or something like that and it's just been this vicious cycle which kind of sucks we don't really have we haven't really had um I feel like we haven't had a day below 80 degrees a day where you can actually go outside like not like a Tuesday or Wednesday or something um we haven't had a day below like 80 degrees and 90 percent humidity between the (laughs) between the the days of like Thursday to Sunday for weeks now so basically that's a bit of a bummer yeah i mean it sucks (laughs) that's why i hate like there were people before the summer started and like we were starting to look at covid as oh maybe we'll have like a fun summer kind of thing and i was like i wish people understood how much new york summers really suck like they're just horribly hot and like there's nothing redeeming but the only thing worse is like dc in the summer where it's actually like if you go outside you just melt but here is equally as 
terrible unless you're in a bar watching the Euros and it's somehow hotter in there than it is outside. <laughs> Uh, as, we, as we experienced on, uh, <laughs> yesterday yeah that's my that's my only exception but i mean i fully agree with you what like what is there to do inside now like i'm actually thinking about it now is there anything that you can really do inside that, like in new york that's quote-unquote a fun activity um, no, honestly, outside of the bars like i mean the bars are fairly normal now unfortunately we've lost to go drinks so you can't they don't give you the uh plastic cups or anything anymore but it's just the only thing that feels like totally 100% normal again is just guys like bars because that people are just sitting inside and stuff again but yeah no true there's still a long still a lot of the summer left anyway so I think uh, at some point we're going to have to just get out of the city again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let's just leave. (laughs) Let's just do that. (laughs) Sick of it already, honestly. But yeah. Oh, man. Well, before we leave the city and before we all go do vacation things in August, we have to talk about the Euros. That's our starting point. Vrion, I think I saw the five stages of grief. Um like three times during this game, <laughs> like wholehearted, like in its full form, I saw all these stages of gri- stages of grief three times over. And honestly, I don't feel bad. <laughs> I've thought about this. <laughs> I've thought about this for several days since the final. I told Rian before we started talking, I was like, you're going to have, you're going to hate some of my hot takes or like you already do, (laughs) but I'm going to have extremely hot takes during the pod that you're probably going to fight me on. But my first hot take is that I quite frankly do not feel bad for England at all. Like the nation, (laughs) the team, I just don't feel. And and this is is subjectivity at its finest, but (laughs) what do you have a podcast for without subjectivity? No, no. I mean, just to, to start off, we were in this huge bar um watching this game that was i think i think it's like 70 to 80 percent england supporters right and then the other 20 to 30 percent definitely italian supporters although i wouldn't necessarily say <laughs> a lot of them were actual italians i would if i had to guess there was a higher share of actual english people <laughs> at that bar than actual italians we had a we had a we had a table of um how do I put this uh, borderline guidos next, next to us <laughs> who, who at one point during the game just started yelling, just started yelling. Like I, I went before a goal was scored or the goal was scored, I should say. Um, so, you know, there, there, it was a passionate scene. I'll put it that way. But um, I, I don't know. I'll say for, I think it's super fair to not feel uh, sympathy for England as a nation uh, population as at its whole, other than other than the few Englishmen that we that we know and the the few that we were with watching that game, which <laughs> I'm sure that's where Ellis is getting his um, <laughs> his experiences of, of it, the five of stages, his experiences of the five <laughs> oh, stages oh, yes. of grief yeah, yeah, yeah. from honestly, yeah, um, super fair. We saw that we saw the reaction after the game after the penalties to Rashford, Sancho. And uh, Bakayo Saka, and we were reminded, oh yes, this is why most people don't want this team to achieve <laughs> anything. Um, but I think from the players' standpoint, 
you know, the, the players themselves have shown through the last year plus that they're just a great group of guys, like a really great group of guys. Like they spent almost the entirety of the tournament getting booed by a portion of their own home base for for taking a knee in every game right they were getting slaughtered by um by mps in in the uk at the beginning of the tournament who were basically saying oh i won't even watch them like uh, i'm not going to root for this team and then by the time we get to the semi-final and the final you can see all of these pictures on twitter of those same hypocrites who have got on all uh like a Bakayo soccer jersey and Raheem sterling jersey and england jerseys like feigning um fanaticism for these for <laughs> for these uh guys so th- they stood up in the face of all of that uh Garrett Southgate as well like as a human being great man like like just wonderful wonderful um we'll, we'll get first to the, players the and stuff, football but, part of it but as, but, as but a human being just what it, yeah as a human <laughs> being yes yeah I mean we have to be able to separate it 100 <laughs> percent. but um I think just from like for a feeling for these players and and they should be proud anyway but uh this is a great group of guys in general um and that i think uh was a fair thing for people to root for you can always just dislike england as a concept but <laughs> but as, as one frequently does <laughs> but but these these were a great group of guys and and it was sad to see it end the way it did for them Yeah. And I mean, in terms of the team and and the players, right. It obviously meant a lot to them to be like, I'm just stating the obvious at this point, but the way that they carried themselves and the way that they carried their roles within this team, right. Outside of just football was, was really nothing short of, of commendable by far. I mean, it, 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 I just have never seen that sort of bondage and, and brotherhood behind a cause that they all clearly feel very deeply about and has roots, not just racially, but familially and, and and really in almost half the team's backgrounds, right? This is something that everyone on that team could feel in one way or another, um, including Harry Maguire, who might be the pastiest of paste. So (laughs) it, it, it goes a long way. It says a lot that this team really felt bonded and, to Gareth Southgate's, Southgate's credit, he was largely responsible for that. He absolutely provided a platform and an outlet for these players to feel heard, right? And, and with his articles in The Athletic, with his press conferences, everything that he was doing to really promote their general well-being, right, and, and their general voices, that goes a long way to, to build solid, solid morale for this team. And I think that's genuinely a big part of why they reached the final. I mean, talent aside, which obviously there's a bountiful amount of it on this team, but that was a big part of it. So I'll I'll stop there. And, um, and maybe there's another side to this too, Rian in, you know, the team that actually won the Euros too. Um, The side that seemingly could have won it on a Jorginho penalty which, by the way, I said to Rian in this bar, um, if Jorginho does win the Euros, this is before the penalty, by the way, or before the penalty shootout even started, is that if Jorginho wins the Euros for Italy on penalties, I will never watch football again. Thank God that did not happen. Um, 
but for, for again, variety of reasons, but why don't we, why don't we just focus for a second on Italy, right. And, and kind of reviewing their portion in all of this. And I guess we can really just talk about the, the match as a whole too. Yeah. Starts from the very, from the very beginning. Right? Yeah. <laughs> two, two minutes, two minutes in and wow. Like what a, what a start. Like I mean, I, I think we were all kind of shell shocked in the bar. Honestly, like it was, you, you just um, uh, it's I think what was it? It started off that the there was a corner like within the first minute or something mm-hmm. that that England had to defend because I think Harry Maguire just passed it straight out into yeah. a corner because he just missed uh, Pickford and and hit straight out and the first thought was. Oh no! <laughs> like, <laughs> this is gonna be their day. Like, oh my gosh! It was the, it was um, the nerves. Yeah, but I mean, from that corner is where the goal comes from. It starts with like really calm play by Luke Shaw, um, who was just I, I think on the day was England's best player. I know obviously he will, but I think outside of that too, just how calm he was in possession and the fact that he was really the guy driving the ball forward for England more than anyone else. And we'll get into, you know, why they had such an issue doing that. But um, so I was just really calm play from him and Harry Kane, who's dro- who from the corner has just kind of stayed deep. And then everyone from England starts flooding forward um, off of like a, a, a good switch from, from Harry Kane out to Trippier and everyone's flying forward. Honestly, like felt like the first time in the entire tournament that England actually counterattacked as a team. Yeah. And by the time Trippier plays the ball in and, and credit him for hesitating and waiting for over um the overlap from, from Luke Shaw there, by the time he's played that ball in the box, there's I counted it was like five English players in yeah. the box at once. And <laughs> We we I don't feel like we hadn't seen that at all during the during the entirety of the tournament. No. And unfortunately, we didn't see that again for the rest of the game from them too. So yeah, and, and that well, you stole the, the thought out of my mouth. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't see that anything like that the rest of the game from them. But that was, I think, one of my favorite England goals from this tournament. Like Raheem Sterling aside, like Kane moments of brilliance aside, that was their best team goal. Because it yeah. showcased what they can do when they tactically can get it right. And when Southgate can tactically get it right, they completely overwhelmed this Italian side for the first, I would say, 10, 15 minutes of this game. Yeah, They yeah. were all over them, completely overloading them in every part of the pitch. They were faster to each ball in the first 15 minutes of this game. There's a, and that, obviously that was a big part of why Luke Shaw, I think, scored. It was the, the earliest Euro finals goal on, in history. And large part was because they ran at Italy. Like they weren't, they weren't scared to, to drop or they didn't, <laughs> I guess they didn't drop back into, into defense and, and hold the ball and really circulate it as slowly as maybe a Spain might, right? Because that, that's a different style of play. England were very direct in the first 10 minutes, very direct. And they had to be because Let's face it, Kane's not the fastest striker in the world or fastest forward in the world. 
But what his false nine position really allowed them to do is to get the likes of Luke Shaw, Kieran Trippier, Raheem Sterling out in front in the wide areas where Italy would probably arguably suffer the most defensively. And we talked about this for the last several weeks. Where where's Italy's weak point where it's not in the central defense. It's not in the just brilliance of Jorginho and Verratti um, and Barella right in that midfield. Like that's not even defensively. That's not their weak point. Their weak point is their, their wing or their uh, fullback play. So Gareth Southgate got that right in the first 15 minutes, a hundred percent. Do you want to talk about the other 75 minutes of this game? Or do you have anything else to say about the first 15 minutes? Cause I have some thoughts. <laughs> nah, no, I like just to round out the 15 minutes it, during, during my rewatch of this, like after 15 minutes, I sort down like Italy was so, so narrow without, without the ball. Like, there were in that, in that goal itself, but then there's another chance, I think so, around like 10 minutes um, where Emerson is similarly just so narrow because I believe it was uh, Chiellini. He's like following around Calvin Phillips because Calvin Phillips has run forward and, and, and the center backs are just moving with the England rudders who are moving to the left and Emerson, bless him. He's put in a tough, he's put in, he's put in a position where he has to make a tough decision. And as a Chelsea supporter, I've seen him <laughs> fail with making the right decision in those areas. And, uh, and they're just so narrow, just so, so narrow. Um, and, you know, Insigne kind of tried to help, but like he doesn't really know how to come out and help on the wing and stuff. So um, that was just an issue that Italy were having that whole first 15 minutes. But as it got more and more into that half, it, things started to uh settle down from an italy's point of view as i'm sure Elise is about to let me know oh yes oh oh this is this is the other i honestly i don't know even know if this is a hot take but i thought overall over the course of 120 minutes plus penalties it's not that england weren't the better side i thought england were actively terrible in this game like i i actively think that they had a terrible performance all around and largely did not. I want to put, we've talked about this years ago, like the idea of deserving to win a game, I Mm. think is kind of silly, Um, but they should not have expected to win the game based on the way that they played. And this is what I'll say. This is what I mean by this. After the first 15 minutes where England really overran Italy, Italy started to get into the, into the swing of things by really controlling possession, controlling the tempo of this game. And once that happened, it felt like England were letting this game get away from them a little bit in that they were scared to come out of their positions to really put the press on. And I'm not saying that England's strong suit is the, the, gig and press like that's not like what they're all familiar with i get it but with the quality of players that they had in order to really counterattack the way that probably would have yielded more goals in them for them especially in that second half they needed to come out of their mid block and they didn't they didn't the entire rest of that game because they they just were too scared. I, I don't even know if tactically they, uh, you know, Southgate got it that wrong. I would certainly argue that Calvin Phillips should not have started that game. And I certainly would argue that Declan Rice should have not been taken off in that game. 
I would probably argue and say that Gareth Southgate got it right by starting Kieran Trippier as well as Kyle Walker. I thought that was a wonderful, wonderful move. And that, to me, signaled that this was going to be a more offensive and direct performance like we saw in the first 15 minutes. But after that goal, it's almost like Southgate's tactic was, all right, we've got our goal. All right, we're going to sit in for the next 75 minutes and see what happens. And that's not, that's just not a winning formula um, for, I, I would say against this, this Italian side. So is that, is that too hot of a take for what I just said? No, I, I, I maybe wouldn't be as intense on like terrible all around from the team. But England I, didn't I, have a single but, shot on goal. No, no, agreed. After I, like after that, agreed, agreed, agreed. I I think um, I I it's always hard to tell if it's the players or or you know the the um the game plan itself, right? Because that first even even after the first fifteen minutes, when you know more or less England start to drop more after that after those first 15, 20 minutes, it isn't until like. 30-ish minutes in where I have done like first time that Italy specifically like Jorginho and Verratti start moving the ball with one two touches right and ends up leading to like a a wild like 25 yard shot from Insigne but honestly that first half from an Italian point of view in terms of actually being able to penetrate right we, we said it during the game during that first half when we were sitting sitting there talking they were moving the ball so slowly. Like yeah. Italy yeah. was doing nothing to actually threaten England. Um, I think England was doing a good job of not allowing Insigne to get on the ball very much. Mm-hmm. And, and like for them, for the most part in his entire game, Immobile was really ineffective. Just so, so ineffective for, for um, Italy. Cause he, I, I, I think it's tough for him because he feels like his playing style is very poacher, very scrap, not necessarily scrappy, but finishing chances when he gets on the end of them, like a poacher in the box and stuff, but he doesn't offer you very much outside of that. And that I think really hindered them um, a lot in that first half, but you're right in the sense. I feel like that um, rice Phillips pairing I think by the end of the first half, I wrote it down here somewhere. By the end of it, of the half, like I was like, the three four three has been totally figured out. They figured yep. it out. Like yep. they, you, they, a sub needs to be made. Like it needs to change the three center mids um, soon. And so I, I, I think it was just. I, I think that formation, if played on like the counter way more, like they, they could have found more joy, right? But. I just don't. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't think that that midfield two body should have should have lasted sixty odd, sixty seven odd minutes that it did, honestly. Um, yeah. And I think like you were, what you were saying earlier when you said mid block, I think that was very generous for, I, it, for, it, for it what was. it became, it especially was. in the second half for England. What it became yeah. in the second half was, I, I think, partially what Italy found at the end of the first half is like Verratti and Jorginho, as well as Barella, um, whenever the ball was played into them by the, the center backs, and they continued this in the second half, um, whether, whenever it was played into one of those three guys, there was always at least one of the other ones that it was so close by 
yeah. to allow for like the one twos or just allow to pass and move in, in someone else to find the space. Uh, and they were, they figured that out by, I, I feel like, I think like 40 minutes in, they figured out how to play through that, that England team. And I think you have to give a lot of credit too to um, Federico Chiesa, who had a great game until he um, had to be stopped off. But yeah, he was the most direct player on Italy in that first half. And I think a few times he was the guy who was generating more like half he, chances. He alone probably generated yeah. like point three to point four <laughs> XG, like alone. Because there was the one run that he had right before he went off right where yeah. he just darted through like everyone in the bar i remember was like oh oh it was oh my i God. think it was past kyle walker because he got past <laughs> yeah, walker, yeah, yeah, yeah. like what <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and by the way i think that was the only player to get by kyle walker in the entire tournament or the only time that he's been yeah. dribbled by he was only dribbled by once this tournament so obviously kyle walker did have a, a standout tournament in, in my quietly had a standout tournament mm-hmm. um but Chiesa, yes i mean that run was really special. Like, I don't know why, but it just, it, it kind of woke the game up a little bit. Yeah. And I, I honestly forget if it was right before or right after um, Bonucci's goal. But in that time, in that basically that five to 10 minute time frame, that's when Italy really woke up. It wasn't necessarily yeah. in, in the latter half of the first half, because again, to Rian's point, they circulated the ball very slowly and there was no directness from them. It was, it was more safe than anything. But I absolutely think that um, then that second half, they they took off. I mean, the one thing that really, really seemed to work well for them was these outlet balls to um, Insigne that, yeah, like, I would have thought England's defensive line would have done better with, honestly. It's not to say that Insigne, I've pointed out Insigne has been one of my favorite players on uh, this Italian national team this summer, but I would have thought they did a, they would do a better job in closing him down just because of how large they are. Like, this is purely like a physical one-on-one battle. They just weren't, they weren't quick enough. Like, they just weren't. That's what it comes down to. And that allowed, I think, a lot of chances to be to be not necessarily crossed in because we only really saw Benucci Chiellini kind of move forward in the latter half of the second half, but more so it allowed other players from midfield to kind of bomb in. Right. Yep. So again, Barella being a big part of that um, to, to really make space kind of right in front of the 18 and, and to get shots off, to get um, to little through balls that were tried to cut through, but sometimes stuffed out. So that sort of progression of play seemed to work really well for them. And I just would have thought, you know, England would have done a better job with that. Yeah. I think actually in that case, I think I have to give Mancini a lot of credit, um, Mm -hmm. especially for the second half adjustments. Right. I I think one of the things that happened, why they were having such an issue getting the ball out for most of that first half, but at some point close to the end of it, and then it just becomes a pattern in the second half. Italy starts a lot of their build, ends up starting a lot of their build up play on the right side, yeah. and just draws starts just draws the England um, defenders over to the over to that right side, and then would just as soon as they got in some sort of space, immediately switch it out to the left side to Insigne or or Emerson, who also found a lot more space in the second half himself. Yeah. Um, so that that was like a really good tweak, I think, from from their from their point of view. Uh, also, like second half, 
Italy center backs just started pressing like 10 yards higher. They, they went from first half, they were maybe like a yard or two behind the uh, center circle. And in second half, they are pretty much all of them. Um, Bonucci and Chiellini pressed up in front of the center circle in that entire second half. By this point, Kane, Sterling, and Mount are just putting no pressure, no high pressure anymore. And I think part of that is like, I think Mount was dead by like 50 minutes in this game. Like, yeah. I think yeah. 50-ish minutes, like he was he was dead physically. Um, and so there's no pressure on him. Uh, at that at this point, Declan Rice is like the only player on the team who's actually trying to drive the ball forward uh, by carrying it progressively. And for the entire game, England, in terms of passes into the final third, Harry Maguire, John Stones, Luke Shaw, Declan Rice, and Harry Kane were their five top five in terms of passes into the final third for that entire game. And that was kind of a, one of the biggest issues with that <laughs> double pivot, too, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Rice wasn't doing it quite as much. It wasn't wasn't making as many progressive passes, and um, and they weren't getting it really from from either their midfielders or either their attacking midfielders. Because I, I mean, Sterling Sterling dropped deep a lot more in the first in those first fifteen minutes. He and Kane were dropping deep a lot more in those first fifteen minutes, which really helped to helped in that like two versus three center mid battle that was going on but the second half like none of that like all the progressive passes all of this is i should say for the first half too but all of the passes in between the lines that were breaking lines were coming from luke shaw and mcguire and john stones and not from not from anyone else higher up the pitch uh so that so that was a problem for the entire game and Look like by by time the goal comes, like that goal was, I, I, I'm like hesitant to say that goal was coming just from the sense that it's not like Italy were. It wasn't. The it goal. wasn't necessarily coming like that though. But like it was it. just. It was just England just kept conceding space, and it's yeah. like at some point, yeah, you're gonna end up conceding a corner, and from a corner, we know anything can happen, right? Like especially if it's especially if the movement is as good as it was for, for uh, Italy's court, um, goal itself. And from that point on, like, like you said, after the 10 minutes, 10 minutes after that goal, Italy definitely turned it up a bit in the tempo, but mm-hmm. also England just, I want, I, I looking at those like 10 minutes after the goal again, like they're all over the place. Like they're actually panicked. Like there's one moment where, I can't remember who the ball's passed into. I think it might be Chiesa. Calvin Phillips and Harry Maguire both panic, run at him, and knock each other over. <laughs> and and it's opened up even more space. They, uh, they don't, Italy doesn't end up getting um, a shot off from it, but it was just stuff like that. They just looked all over the place. And the first sub doesn't come until I think around like 70 minutes. And I think I'd wrote down here, I think I wrote down around like 50 minutes. So I was like, they need need subs now like they need the subs now like there's they're just they're not they're not getting the ball forward at all and um i think michael cox wrote a, wrote a very good piece on on this game where he was just more disappointed in the fact that you know if England's going to sit deep like that 
they, they've got to at least try to counter. And there were so yeah. many times yeah. when they won the ball and they would just lump it forward and just kind of drop back again. And so it, rem- it re- honestly, it reminded me of like the Manchester United of like 2008 to like 2010, 11 ish, where they were such a talented team and so stacked against everybody else. But part of what made them successful was the fact that they were able to and recognize the long ball, right? And I, I'm personally never been a fan of that strategy unless you really have the right players. But Manchester United in that era did. And that was an elite counterattacking team, especially exactly. with Ronaldo. When you, of course, when you throw in Ronaldo and Rooney in his prime, of course, yeah. too. And, and you throw in Nani, like all but, of these. But you ha- like, that's the thing, too, right? Yeah. You had Nani and, and players like Ashley Young who yeah. – in fullback positions were deadly. Like, mm-hmm. and again, that's what, that's the comparison I'm trying to make. Like England had that, but didn't put it into practice. And that was, the, that was, they completely shot themselves in the foot in that, in that sense. And I have to blame, I have to blame Gareth Southgate for that. I, I really do. Yeah. And that's, that's where, you know, we have to separate you know, the guy, the, the, <laughs> the great the man for the manager from like the, exactly, exactly. Like, at the at the end of the day this this is not too far off of england's philosophy in general during this tournament where it was all about let's just minimize the amount of chances in the game in general combined chances we want as few of them as possible and just you know bank on the fact that our that our attackers will be able to to finish the chances and be more efficient and on the day, I, I wouldn't say that Italy were efficient, honestly. I, I wouldn't say that Italy were efficient in the final third. But when you concede the space you do, and we've had this conversation when um, talking about Jose Mourinho's teams, right? When you put yourself in the position that you're going to concede every random chance half chance to the other team there's a decent possibility that they're gonna end up getting a goal whether it's whether it's legitimate whether it's like a really good team goal legitimate goal or not you're just you're playing with you're playing chance you're just playing the lottery at that point um especially if you're not going to try to actually attack yourself and i think michael cox also said a great thing he was he's like i mean counterattacking doesn't only give you a chance to score but also buys you time like holding the ball yes. buys you yes. time yes <laughs> so 100 percent. that was a sad that was a sad thing there because um yeah by by like around 70 80 minutes italy were pretty much getting into getting the passing angles that they wanted but just couldn't quite just weren't quite um i think just not quite enough for them to to like fully break through England's back line. Yeah. Um, so I have to give some credit to to uh guys like Kyle Walker and John Stones and Harry Maguire from just a last ditch defending point of view. But there there was a lot that they were forced to do. So that's the sad part of this. Hundred percent. Yeah. So should we well, should we just touch on the, the penalties very very quickly? I, I was gonna say if your heart can take it we can do that <laughs> what is it before we even get into kind of like what this means for both these teams and for Qatar do you think that this was a penalty won by the 
the goalkeepers or was it lost by the players? Which sounds like the most generic BS <laughs> thing I could have ever said. But like, I, there's kind of a point I have to this. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to say this is a penalty shootout won by, by Donnarumma. Because uh, the only penalty that he, well, I guess he went, he, okay, he went the wrong way on two of them, right? He went the wrong way on Maguire's. Um, to be fair, no which was, was just a fan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, okay. <laughs> Look, honestly, like, Donnarumma was, was, feels like he's the biggest goalkeeper in that entire tournament. And I'm not sure if you put him and Thibaut Courtois in the net together, they're getting to that goal. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, that's so true. <laughs> but, you know, Donnarumma went the right way on four. No, it's got to be four, right? Um, or uh, no, not not Rashford. So three of them. We went the right way on three of them. Three of the five. I'll give him. I'll give him credit because this was also the first time I saw um, the first time that a team has won two penalty kick shootouts in the same tournament. And so I, I'll tip the cap, tip my cap to Donnarumma, but um, it's. It's a tough position to be put in for Saka. <laughs> like, like Saka, yeah. Full marks to Jordan Pickford for, honestly, the best technique I've ever seen anyone um, do against a Jorginho penalty. Like, when I rewatched yeah. it, he just didn't move. He just, he actually waited until the ball was hit off of Jorginho's foot. Like, he just, he just stood there. Um, and, you know, for the most part, like, Jorginho doesn't hit those with power. Like, as you saw, as we saw yeah. in the Spain um, shootout, but it was a great save by him, especially in that moment. And we all in the bar were like, wow. And then unfortunately, you know, there's the the one thing I'll say is that there's like an element of, Oh my God, there's a chance that we've, we've really done this when Jorginho missed that penalty as if everybody in the world simply forgot that England still had to take another penalty (laughs) against Donald yeah I'm gonna be honest I thought we were going into sudden death after that yeah. I thought it was I thought those were all five kids like no there is still one more that you had to put away right but anyway sorry you were gonna say no no I was just saying yeah I thought I thought it was done or I thought the five kicks were up um but you know obviously you feel terrible for Bakayo Saka and I don't know like I said at the end of the day what what are your thoughts do you think do you think it's unfair to to put Saka in that position, especially considering I I have never seen him take a penalty for Arsenal? Um, yeah. So, do do you think it's unfair, or are we just kind of you know result bias on that? No, I I think it's I I don't think it's unfair so much as the wrong decision. Like mm-hmm. it's unfair to just so highly berate him because as a nineteen year old and as a human he deserves a little bit more but this is what i meant by was this won by the goalkeepers or lost by the players is that i don't think that england fans especially or in general pundits are giving enough credit to donnarumma and all of a sudden i've become a donnarumma donnarumma apologist during this tournament but <laughs> in, in the last two weeks he's how the turntables yeah, yeah yeah but this is my point right like you said he went the right way on three of those five penalties saved three of them like we'll save two of them one hit the post but um and we're not talking about that like we're just we're solely going off the fact that Saka missed Rashford missed like that's the narrative 
I fully think that this was won by Donnarumma and, and a keeper that has had a deservedly was goalkeeper of the tournament and player of the tournament. Yeah. So player of the tournament. Yeah, it, exactly. And that needs to be given more credit rather than just focusing on the one player that should have done better. And yes, it's, it's arguable that he could have hit the penalty better, both him and Rashford, but that's my point. So it's not unfair on Saka so much to, to put him in that position. I think there would have been better choices. I think Jack Grealish should have been in that position before him. Absolutely. But yeah, every player in that start or every player in that England side absolutely should have been up to taking a penalty. Like everyone, should, you're in that squad for a reason. So I, I do think that he should have been probably towards the end of that pecking order. It's just, I, I think that, I would stop short of saying unfair. Yeah. And now I guess we have to think about like Italy from 2017, the obvious like embarrassment of not making the world cup, not making the 2018 world cup there to coming back four years later and winning the European championships um, now a 34 match unbeaten run for this team, which is just insane. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, you have to give all like so much credit, obviously to, to Mancini because this is probably at, we say what at best the third best squad in this in this tournament i i would still put france and england's overall squad talent mm-hmm. ahead of ahead of italy um but to squeak by spain the way they did and we know like you know that that could have gone either way of course but to make it to this point and beat england in wembley in a full capacity Wembley uh, a Wembley with that I I don't know exactly but damn it sure looked like it was like 80% English fans like at least so um, a hostile environment of course right and uh, to bring this team to to where they are now like that's that's it's such an amazing achievement Um, all that see that newspaper by the way Yes. Oh my gosh. The Scottish, <laughs> what Alex is referring to is uh, one of the Scot- Scotland's national newspapers. The, I believe it was the morning of the final has Roberto <laughs> Mancini's face superimposed over, um, <laughs> uh, is it William Wallace? Is that, I think that's, I think oh, that's I thought great. it was a Sparta. Um, um, it was, it was uh, from Braveheart. So I think it's William Wallace. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and it was like uh save us roberto like you're our final hope or something like yeah, that. yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously you know, a lot of the uk and literally every other part of the uk outside of england yeah, because because mentioned he looks exactly like mel gibson oh <laughs> uh, gosh uh, not gonna touch, not gonna touch <laughs> oh yeah gibson, no we're staying any mel gibson discourse there <laughs> but um <laughs> but yeah an amazing achievement there i i do wonder with this team though elias one of the oldest squads in this tournament. Uh, we talked about it with Miguel, like guys like Insigne, who's 30 now, obviously Benucci and Chiellini are 33 and 35, I believe. Wrong side of 30. Yeah. Um, 
Jorginho and Marco Verratti are both, I believe, 28 and 29. Uh, who else? Oh, my gosh. Um, I believe Immobile is 27. Like, the youth on this, from this team, from this team that actually end up winning it on Sunday, it's it's from the goalkeeper and uh, Chiesa, really, and Barella. Yeah. Barella, we should have done Barella as well. Um, I I wonder if now's maybe the right time for Mancini to to walk away from the from the national team. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he'd be tempted to to go to the World Cup with them, but uh, it, this this feels like I don't know. We always have it, right? The team that won the last international title comes into the World Cup, or the team that won the last international title, or they won the last World Cup comes into the World Cup and they're the team that ends up surprising everyone in the sense of, wow, they got knocked out really early. So I don't know. I, I not, don't want to jinx them. Don't want to jinx them. But, but this feels honestly for, for Roberto Mancini himself, um, you're talking about like his career progression. This feels like maybe a good point to step back into clubs, club uh, management. Cause I, I, personal opinion i feel like this is as far as he could probably take this um this squad but i don't know at least i may, maybe you're feeling differently i was surprised when you started off this thought i'll be honest i was i was pretty surprised <laughs> i don't know if that's the right move still like even after hearing out what you're saying because i i do think in a lot of ways is probably the the most that he can get out of this squad because a lot is going to change in the next 12 months. Like half these players could very well not be in the, in the world cup squad, but I don't know if that's more representation of the aging core that they have or the job that Mancini could potentially do. Like Mancini took a dusted Italian side from four years ago and turned them into this. Right. So I'm, I'd be hard-pressed to say that Italy would be in – well, I guess the question is not would Italy be in a better or worse position without Mancini in Qatar because I think they'd arguably be in a better position with him. But for Mancini himself, where, where would you want to go? I, I guess potentially – I'm not saying he has to do anything immediately. How about yeah, that? yeah, just in terms of like have you reached your peak with this Italian side? I, I would say probably, probably. But that temptation of the World Cup after winning the Euros is always going to be there. And you will always give yourself a fighting chance against pretty much all of any team other than maybe like the top five, right? But, oh, that's hard. Uh, That's hard. I don't think think if I'm Mancini, I'd give that up. I just don't. Like, there's probably something innately nationalistic about staying around. Like there, there has to be because he's, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. Oh, that's fair. That's fair enough. Um, I know we kind, we kind of talked about the significance of this uh, for for England at the start there from the player point of view. I'll just throw in one more one more thing from there. Like guys like Jordan Henderson, who is who has shown like a huge advocate for transgender rights, got to shout him out there too, and and even something like. Like Harry Kane wore a rainbow armband during yeah. the month of June, like as a captain's armband. So and it, and it wasn't um, necessarily performative. Which exactly, was, which exactly. Quite nice. <laughs> it's quite in, it was very in line with with everything that that team's been about. Um, 
we saw Harry Kane's tweet um, the day after the the final, responding to the racist abuse that was that was going towards uh, his teammates. And he said, "Look, if you're being a racist and abusing our or my teammates, then you we don't want you as a fan." So, I, I think. I think that uh, people remember this team, especially Engl- English. People remember this team very, very fondly and should be very, very proud for making it this far. And in all honesty, this is just the beginning for, for this squad. Yeah. They had the youngest squad going into this tournament. And the sky's the limit for them, honestly. Um, <laughs> we'll, it'll probably be Southgate again in, in Qatar because I believe he's earned that. He's at least earned um, the next tournament, and we oh, hope that be, he beyond earned it. Yeah, it's gonna yeah. be his decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you think, so you hope that uh, he learns from this, and yeah. you hope that he, honestly, for lack of a better term, chills out with <laughs> with this with this playing style. Uh, but yeah, this I guess jumping into our the prospects for Qatar thing, we, we've already kind of started it. Um, yeah, this feels like a team that should go into that tournament as one of the three favorites, three or four favorites, honestly. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And England, shockingly, will probably feel like they are in that top five category too, right? Even after a loss in the finals, I think both teams are just still that talented. But again, with a manager like Southgate, you run the risk of just in-game management issues that are so crucial in tournament yeah. football that's yeah. that's going to be england's biggest problem and again nothing against him as a person it's just that his in-game management showed again right why it did not benefit england and we talked obviously earlier about it and i just pray that that's not the case in qatar <laughs> because he will definitely get vilified if if that's the case yeah i mean we look they they have they had all this goodwill build up now yeah, and going to twenty twenty two, it's not going to be the same. The fans are, are going to obviously they still love the players, of course, but they're going to go into that tournament expecting more from right. this team as they, should. To play, as they should to play to play yeah to play more than they did. Yep, um, because now they know that they actually have the talent to do it. It's not like in past years. Um, so yeah, you you can only hope. Um. It's just unfortunate. This game felt very similar to Croatia, to the 2018 semifinal against Croatia, where they went up early and did a fairly similar thing um, and sat on their lead. But all in all, I, I think these are two still very strong teams going into Qatar. And uh, look, they should they should both be contenders for, for going deep in that tournament. Um, from there, at least, though. Should we do a little reflection on this tournament as a yes. whole? We got some some winners and losers here. Yeah, yeah. Some. I think we should thoughts. we should start with maybe let's start with the losers and and build up to oh, of course happier times. <laughs> to happier t- Well, <laughs> listen, my I don't even know if loser is the right word. Is I said to Rian before the podcast, I said I was going to do teams, but I'm almost thinking about doing players now. Generally, my loser from this tournament is the whole French national team. Like, I can't think of even one single player to, to point out. I, honestly, I, if I had to single out a player, you know who it's going to be, but it's going to be Kylian Mbappe. Like, 
my my loser from this tournament is probably going to be him a player that absolutely came onto the scene in the world cup three years ago i would have expected a lot better from him right you're talking about very little in goal contribution you would think that having a supporting cast of kareem benzema and antoine griezmann would be enough to get you the support that you need and obviously Benzema scored his goals. Griezmann, unfortunately, did not so much, but still provided, you know, outlets and and the, the passes to, to kind of get into the final third, which is really his role in both Barcelona, soon to be Atletico, but Barcelona and the <laughs> French national team. Um, Mbappe was just poor. Like everything from his final touches to his shooting accuracy. Obviously, you could talk about the penalty all day, but that wasn't even it for me. It was It was the rest of his game. And I think what really qualified, no, what quantified this this penalty miss for me was the fact that he actively wanted to go fifth. Like it, there's like some weird Ronaldo ego going on in his head to go fifth. But if you're gonna step up like that, you you just can't miss. You can't. You just can't. Like I, to to call yourself or to to want to be like at that level you simply cannot miss those chances, right? So disappointed, honestly, just disappointed in Bob because I actually, I think he's a wonderful player. I think he's a little overrated, but he's a wonderful player still, so. Oh, whoa. I do, I do, <laughs> I genuinely do. But we can get into that another day. Yeah, another day. That's definitely for another day. Yeah. Um, my, I just have one loser, a massive one, just UEFA as a whole. Really? <laughs> Wait, why? Yeah. So starting from the terrible handling of the Denmark Christian Eriksen yes. situation, yes. forcing people who just watched one of their teammates to hard stop on the, on the field to play a game two hours later um, seems pretty nearsighted is the nice way of putting it or monetarily uh, sighted, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> and then from that, to the debacle with not allowing Germany to display um, rainbows on their stadium when they're playing Hungary because the the Hungarian president has basically outlawed being gay pretty much yeah in pretty much. and 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 the UEFA saying oh well actually it's a political statement to allow them to have rainbows is interesting it's like a, it's like a little maze a political statement within a political statement some kind of weird um <laughs> <laughs> some kind of weird inception of sorts or i don't even know basically <laughs> that and then kind of the cherry on top is all four of the teams who were in the semifinals played every one of their group games at home <laughs> and played all of their knockout games, like most of their knockout games in their home country. So, yeah, I'll, I'll give them a slight pass on that part, maybe because of COVID being a pretty big issue. And, and also, I mean, the whole purpose of it playing across the it played across the continent was because of the whole Turkey, uh, you know, bidding for the Olympics as well and protecting their risk in that area. So, I, I also give them a slight pass for that, but the rest of it, 100%. Yeah, they. As uh, I think the clinical phrase is, they done fucked up. Yeah, so, so I'll put them as the biggest loser of this. And uh, yeah, I, th- I think I just agree with you on France. France, Didier Deschamps, if you even want to single him out. No, 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 one. I wouldn't single but, him uh, out because this is exactly what I would expect from Didier fair Deschamps. Enough. Like, yeah. No, this is, <laughs> we knew what we were coming into with Didier Deschamps. Every single person should have known that. 
there's no one on this French team that was just gonna listen to him and be like, oh, genius game plan, like Mister, like yeah, that's that's what we're gonna do. No, they just went out there for pure vibes, and and that way that's what you got. All right, well, shall we move on to the winners? The winners, yeah. Rian. You really want to know who my winner is? Because you might you might hate me for my answer, but I'm gonna say it anyway. My winner is Luis Enrique for, for this Spanish fair. I, I think that Luis Enrique took this side from basically the depths of what we thought were a very, was a very rattled Spanish national team about one to two years ago, was not playing well at all. I mean, th- their record back, I think, probably pre-COVID, um, outside of that one massive Germany win, was really, really poor. And to take that team, basically put together what is a Spanish team on form, basically, like he put together all these players based on their season form from from this past year, their club teams, and reached the semifinals of the Euros, albeit, I mean, on penalties in one case, it's still credit where credit is due because Unai Simon came up big in moments when he needed to Obviously, he had his mistakes, but even <laughs> yeah. through <laughs> yeah, we know about that. Even through the struggles that Morata had, he is still a player that unfortunately ended on a low note, but had some really bright moments in their their extra time goal against Croatia, and also his his finish to to tie the game um, against um, against Italy as well. So, again, I just have to give him props for really selecting a side that made sense especially in, uh, amongst COVID and players getting COVID. So um, Luis Enrique is, is my winner for this tournament. No, I love, I love it. I mean, especially after, after how confused we were about the team going into yeah. the tournament. I mean, even it, it was still weird. Like Mar- Marco Zirente stopped playing right back after like a, a game and a half. So, so yeah, they gave up there. Yeah, that experiment like, yeah, did not is, work. This was probably too weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, that's great. Like, I mean, you think about, I mean, Pedri didn't even get into the senior squad until what, like January, uh, 2021, end of 2020? End of 2020. Yeah, because yeah, he wasn't in the team for that 6 0 win against Germany. No. So, you know, um, yeah, I mean, huge credit to him. And that kind of ties into my, one of my winners, too. Uh, as a whole, teams like Italy, Spain, and Denmark, who rarely compromised in that substance versus control thing, rarely, sub- rarely compromised the substance for control. And I think maybe the only example of one of those three teams doing that is maybe, is maybe Italy in the semifinal. But we talked about that was more Spain- really put like really just strangling the life out of that game for um for italy more than italy just sitting in they just couldn't get the ball back yeah um yeah but no those teams those teams the entire tournament played extremely positively and just didn't i don't know didn't didn't sit back and 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 were aggressive and i I think for the most part got what they deserved i mean i think i think the best game um aesthetically of the tournament was the semifinal between Italy and Spain and that was yeah. a fantastic game uh and and I mean Denmark we, we talked we said that they kind of just kind of ran out of steam by the end um obviously like emotionally physically that, that whole tournament was a roller coaster for them but they never compromised too they played some of the best football I've 
of of any team in the tournament too so um teams that just went out and and tried to go out and score and and um you know without compromising a lot at the back that that was that was like wonderful to watch and it was and it was actually there was something satisfying about seeing one of those teams end up winning it in the end yeah Uh, and i hope we see more of that in international tournaments because sometimes it can just become like I mean, not gonna say it just it sometimes becomes boring in the knockout stages of these <laughs> tournaments and and um and this one wasn't yeah. which goes into my second winner um which was just us the fans I thought I thought we yeah. were big winners of this tournament especially after after what felt so many times like four of a season um just games almost every day which in, in normal times would be awesome but you know without any fans we, there was just always something missing from these games and uh having this tournament having fans back and especially in the knockout rounds and seeing the the brand of soccer and football that we saw during this tournament it was um it was it was really great and it was something that i feel like we as as uh fans needed and like deserved after just such a such a difficult year not just on not just have to do with with soccer but such a difficult year in general I think this tournament was just great for people's mental mental well-being honestly yeah yeah 100 percent. it's always nice to have a respite like this over the summer with football just as beautifully played as it was during the tournament and honestly I think we forgot how much of a winner that little UEFA car coming to, to bring the ball to the referee every time. Oh my goodness. Yes. I I cannot (laughs) believe that we forgot about that. So yeah, that would be my other winner. Huge winner. Volkswagen. I think it was Volkswagen. Volkswagen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Volkswagen is actually the biggest winner monetarily from this. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent agreed, but I think that gets everything we were going to talk about. I mean, international tournaments for the major international tournaments so, so sorry inter major international tournaments are done we still have the gold cup at the olympics which we'll touch on in a couple of weeks but take a quick break for next couple of weeks and if anything crazy happens we'll obviously come back but i think it's time that we all reward ourselves with a slight slight holiday as they call it in europe so that's what we're going to do. And we'll be back talking a little bit about any of the big transfers, obviously. Uh, Alex, we got, this has got to be the, the transition to part two. <laughs> oh, of course. I forgot about part two in this. Wow. Completely. Anyway, we still have the Copa America to talk about. So that'll be right after this break. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, part two. My favorite part. The part that I've been waiting seven years to talk about. Maybe much longer than, uh, actually, yeah, much longer than I've been alive for for Argentinians. But a moment that, uh, it's like one of those things where I'll genuinely just never forget how happy I was in that moment. Oh, man, Rian. I can't even explain. Like it's like a weird weight lifted off my shoulders. Messy <laughs> off of your shoulders. Oh, yeah, 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 no. Off of it's, my this is this is an amazing way to talk. <laughs> <laughs> of course, being very you know self centered about it is the way to go. But <laughs> no, it, honestly, like it does. Like it feels like it feels like the one thing that people, for some odd reason, as if 
this was like the one defining factor that Messi hadn't won anything with Argentina was like the only reason he could not be considered the greatest player of all time. And now like that argument obviously goes flying out the window. And for me, like as a Barcelona fan, as a Messi, like it, it feels like now that way, I don't have to defend that and talk to that anymore. Um, Cause now it's only the world cup. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Now you know, stoop that low. (laughs) I'm saying that is the only thing you'll have to defend now. Sure. But you could say, I can't win. I can't win. No, but you you can say to other people that Maradona never won the Copa. So, exactly. Now they do Pele. Straw man versus straw man theories. So, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Now you're thinking the way I like. (laughs) But anyway, of course, we're talking about the Argentina Brazil Copa America final. And honestly, like calling a spade a spade, like it is a sad reality that a fans were not able to be in attendance for a majority of this tournament outside the final, where I think it was about 2000 fans um, per a piece, right. For Brazil and Argentina respectively. And really not that great of like, and I, I can only speak for like the American side of things, but like not that great of a U.S. coverage of the tournament. Like obviously it was on Fox soccer and like they had every game and like, they obviously covered the final pretty well. But even the final, like, they started streaming it late because I think the athletics game, like, baseball game was still on, like, went to extra innings. So, like, I literally started watching, like, the second minute, and I was like, this is just, like, weird. Like, I – there just wasn't that much of a focus on the Copa while the Euros were going on, which is which is sad, but it's just kind of the reality of uh, of where the money lies, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. I mean, also, also it, was, it was on Fox Sports, right? So, I think we <laughs> yeah. know – I think we've learned enough like learn more than we need to know about Fox Fox's uh, soccer coverage. (laughs) There's only so much Alexi Lalas I could take in my life. Yeah. I mean, we had, we had Gus Johnston calling champions league games like eight years ago. (laughs) It was fully a college basketball commentator. Yeah. Oh my God. They tried that experiment for a year and two resounding negative uh, reviews. So of course, yeah that, that that's that, no worry that's not a money thing i don't think that is a fox is <laughs> just very bad at this true true but yeah i mean this this moment i feel like this final and i want to talk about the game albeit it was absolutely we're just talking about it during the break like it was absolutely horrendous like the final itself like let's just point out that the, the game was not pretty to watch like there were i think over I think it was seven yellow cards and just a countless number of fouls. Like I actually genuinely lost count. And to be fair, a lot of people were calling out how ridiculous the number of fouls were, but what did you genuinely expect from an Argentina Brazil final? <laughs> other than that, like there, that should have been the expectation for people. If you <laughs> for for any Copa teams. America final. Right? Yeah. For any, it could, it could have been Chile Argentina <laughs> for all I care. That's exactly what you were going to get, but it was, it was almost 50 fouls, 47 fouls between the two yeah. teams. Just, just to throw Good God, Four, 47 fouls. How many, how many yellow cards? I think I may have been off with seven yellow um, cards because there, there were subs and nine, both LaCel- nine, there nine you go. Nine yellows. Yeah, and both like LaCelso and Paredes picked up yellow cards and were taken out because it was just that physical. And anyway, Rion, Lionel Messi's first international trophy is obviously going to take the headlines in every single paper new like news outlet whatever and obviously that's an important part of it but 
I want to talk about the game, you know, a little bit about what it meant for Argentina and also what it meant for Brazil too, because let's point out that this final was played in the Maracanã, the same stadium that Argentina lost the World Cup final in 2014, Germany, and of course, a game where Brazil have not, A, I think, ever lost to Argentina in a competitive match, and B, never lost to them in the Maracanã, so, or in Brazil, I should say, not even just that stadium. So this was massive for Argentinian fans. Like I'm taking Messi out of the picture. Like he was massive for this country to just show up and just a massive FU to the entirety of Brazil and, and specifically Bolsonaro, who before the game, of course, claimed that Brazil were going to win 5-0, which very clearly did not happen. Yeah, it, it, that is the first thing we can be happy with. But um, <laughs> at the end of this weekend, two very, very... Um, I guess the nicest way to put it is conservative um, <laughs> rulers of, or leaders of their countries were not able to be happy at the end of the night. But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true, true. <laughs> but um, now, it, it, just like on the game itself, um, obviously Argentina exercised their demons in the Maracanã there. And in general, the whole the kind of continuous letdowns and continuous disappoint uh disappointments and for Messi when he is playing with this Argentinian national team and and in these big games that was kind of exercised too that narrative was exercised right as if we're like pretty much the only uh, there was like maybe three highlights of this game maybe (laughs) like it's but but with the biggest one of all being the goal that goal comes from someone other than Lionel Messi dropping deep. And in this case, it was Rodrigo De Paul, who just today confirmed his transfer to um, to Atletico Madrid. So that's, mm-hmm. yeah, he'll be someone to look out for next season. A, a player but, uh, I pointed out, by the way, in the, like the 2016 Copa America, like eight years ago, <laughs> where I was like, wait, he is quite good for, yeah. for this Argentinian. Like he was one of the starlights. And I'm really happy that now years later, he's got his move. But yeah. Yeah um but but yeah that goal is yeah for once it's not messy who does who has to drop deep like that and it's and it's DePaul who not just has to but is looking for the ball too like this is another thing that so many times has just not really occurred with Argentina like players wanting the ball in the similar areas as Messi or do or wanting the ball you know to create on their own right but and and DePaul dropped deep and he plays it to Angel Di Maria who you know, has I, I'm sure that he would be pretty close to the top of the list of those um Argentina players who wanted to win this for Messi because of the just you know he's played with him for so so long and he's been through all those same heartbreaks with him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um but it's DePaul's like fantastic pass, uh long past, um and, and a, a little great luck. finish. A little luck. A little a little luck. That's true. Uh, I can't remember who's the left back. Lodi. 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 Yeah. Of our beloved. Oh, Atletico. man. <laughs> yeah. Um, he just can't reach it. Just can't reach the ball. Like, it takes a tough bounce for his for his uh, case. But it's still a great finish from Angel Di Maria, who I think unlike a lot of uh, Messi's teammates on Argentina in the past, like, he almost always steps up in big games, like club and country, mm-hmm. not just not just for Argentina, but great finish. And then, you know, from there, like 
neither team really created anything of substance. Um, and DePaul could have gotten a second goal, uh, sorry, second assist at the end where, where he passes into Messi, I think like three or so minutes left yeah. in, uh, in, in normal time. And I think Messi just like kind of tripped over the ball. Maybe I, I, I couldn't tell if he tripped over the ball or like lost his footing um, in the, in the actual turf itself. So I think he probably did a mixture of both in a weird way, <laughs> but we did find out actually after the game that Messi's been suffering from a hamstring problem for the last two games. So there's definitely an element of why I, I think he probably didn't play up to his fittest or his finest in, um, in, probably either of those games you would say um but more so in the final because i think in in the semi he was still very very active all over the field but yeah that those last like five minutes really made me nervous because i was like oh this is the way the gods come back after that miss brazil is 100 percent gonna score and i have never had a more clenched asshole than i did in those last five minutes and it worked it worked out perfectly well and I think you said it best when it was people other than Messi stepping up for him. Like, yeah. like weirdly enough, like, yes, for Argentina, yes, for your country, because obviously you're there to do, to do that job. But you saw even after the final whistle went, like, they didn't go to Scaloni. They didn't fall to their knees and thank God. They, they all ran to him. Like they all, they all knew what it meant to him and and like the burden that he's been carrying and how much he wanted it that badly. Like it was like they were celebrating his win rather than Argentina's win. It, it was like, a, I've never seen that happen before where like, have you ever seen a team run towards just one player? Like I just, I can't. No, I mean, outside of like a goalkeeper, like at the yeah. end of a penalty kick shootout or maybe like, or, it, or any game where, where a keeper is so huge in a final, like, no, not really. Yeah. Right? It, it was just a weird beautiful moment um to witness honestly it was and and obviously of course i was in tears on saturday night for all good reasons so (laughs) i uh i'm saying this with a smile on my face (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting now like looking looking ahead with both of these teams Uh, from the brazilian perspective i mean you, you think about for neymar that was also a very big huge huge game for his you know brazilian national team legacy right because Mm -hmm. Brazil's Copa win two years ago was around the same time as his <laughs> sexual assault allegations, right? Right, and that's and that's something that will that will obviously somewhat stick with him um, for for his career and like you know as him as a person. But he missed that he missed that tournament, um, mm-hmm. and Brazil won it without him in Brazil. Uh, and, and to this day, he still has not won a major tournament with um, with Brazil, and that's something that will be thrown at him for for his brazilian legacy again again um that is that was a big game i think for it was such a big game for him and messi um in terms of just like stature and yeah who knows i i I think like looking forward like if we're talking about 18 months from now um even though brazil lost that game i i still feel that 18 months from now they they've I think they'll still be a better team than than Argentina going into the World Cup. I think they'll still look like more of a favorite to uh, go far in that tournament. And I think that's still a very good team they have there. Have to be really encouraged by Richarlison's performance in that in that whole tournament. But yeah, it, it's a, it's it's a tough one. It's a tough. It's going to be a tough one for for Neymar to 
to eat, but I think it's all after the game. I mean, after the game, he was he had a really sweet embrace with uh with Messi, and then I think he tweeted out afterwards too that you know he was he was super sad that he lost, but he was very happy to see Messi win. So yeah, and that's honestly like it, you could see like their friendship kind of show through. Like more importantly than anything, like they are actually close friends apparently um despite everything that's happened and so that was kind of a warm moment there's a lot of like warm and fuzzies after this Copa America <laughs> in, like a weird way like despite the fact that the Brazil lost to Brazil and and that's a major talking point like I feel like the footballing world as a whole is just like took a kind of a, a little bit of like a exhale and is like kind of like relieved or almost like happy that Messi has has gotten that trophy and like we've seen that happen and now we can kind of like go on our way and like, especially looking towards like the world cup and guitar, yeah. like now I really don't think there's a favorite for that tournament right now. Maybe that'll change. Maybe that'll change in the next 12 months, but I don't think there's a genuine favorite for that, that tournament. I mean, you could say, okay, maybe Italy or maybe Brazil, Argentina or England, or like you could maybe say that, but again, I'm naming four teams off the bat right there that are good, but I don't think any of them are so exquisitely perfect that they're just gonna run their way to the semis or something like it's just i don't see that yeah i know i i i, honestly, I agree i agree there too like our the, the overwhelming favorites before this summer obviously would have been france and i i think to some extent they still will probably be the considered the favorite going into 2022 but <laughs> obviously depending on who their coach is and depending on if they recover from a just personal standpoint from all of the <laughs> from all of the, the news that has come out as as the fallout from that from their exit from the euros um who knows what the state of that team will be going yeah, into that yeah. tournament and so so they their like overwhelming favorite tag has been knocked down to like okay they're probably still the best team overall in the world very but, good yeah they're yeah. still a very good team yeah but but now it's now it's you know what have you done for me lately right so yeah, <laughs> like, yeah literally, that's, literally that's really just all it is now uh and and yeah there's no reason for there's no reason that brazil shouldn't be one of the three or four favorites going into that tournament like, 100%. All, things, all things considered like, all things you know healthy and health wise um being in a good shape for them but but yeah that's that's where we are now. Like instead of looking ahead to next summer, we're looking ahead <laughs> like we're looking ahead to 18 months from now. And then that could be anything. Like I hope that these players, I hope that so many of them get a rest next summer. Um so that so that we're not in this terrible position where the sea club season starts in 2022, 2023. Um, and the players are still like it just haven't no, stopped playing haven't in like two years <laughs> and then and then there are just injuries leading up to that world cup or yeah. injuries very early in it that kind of killed the quality of the tournament but uh but yeah i mean we're, we're done with like the major major international tournaments now for until december 2022 and, yeah and in some ways i'm kind of grateful for that just for the yeah. players sake obviously we'll still be talking about everything related to club football for a very long time and the summer silly season is absolutely not over yet but yeah i'm ex i'm kind of excited for that break too the the one thing i just want to point out like about this Copa america final too was just how impressive a couple players really were you mentioned richarlison from brazil who i thought had a wonderfully 
wonderfully impressive performance, not only in this final where he had his, his goal called, you know, offside rightfully, um, but also just generally his combination play with Neymar and his combination play with Paqueta and, and the rest of the forward line, I thought was really, really impressed with the way he dropped in and out of kind of the wide areas and in between the central areas that really dragged defenders out of their place. And I don't think this was necessarily the case with Argentina because Argentina's mid block was so well, like oiled. Like it was inc- like, I was impressed for an Argentinian side that I do not rate very well defensively. They really stood up in this tournament um, as a defensive stronghold, but Richarlison still dragged the places. Like you could, there's a reason why Los Celso, Paredes and DePaul were all on yellow cards and it was because they were forced to foul Neymar essentially because Richarlison and base, I I would say Richarlison um, and Everton kind of dragged their defensive lines just like out of, out of the way basically. And so they were left, they were left stranded. This midfield was left stranded a couple of times and and Neymar in that position is obviously lethal. So there's a reason why there were that many yellow cards. Um, So I, I was very impressed with, were Charleston for Brazil and then two players from Argentina that I, I would definitely call out is a Lo Celso. I mean, Lo Celso was massive in this tournament. He, he basically operated as a wide midfielder um, and a central midfielder, like switching in between those roles. And in this final, especially when like you saw um, Tagliafigo, Tagliafigo come on for, I forget who he came on for, um, yeah, I forget who he came uh, on. He came for. on for Lo Celso. He came, you're right. So he came on for Lo Celso. What you saw that I, and this is my second player, uh, Marcus Acuna. You saw Marcus Acuna get forward really, really well and didn't really cause that many problems in the final, but I thought he was actually very quietly impressive in providing space on the on the left side where they didn't really have it. Like they didn't have width, whereas Di Maria is always going to do his thing on the right. Like you don't ever have to worry about that. <laughs> But they didn't have that on the left. And what that enabled Messi to do is not necessarily just take up the right-handed side like he normally does, but move more centrally. And that, I think, was really key in the Ecuador game, the Colombia game. Um, I I mean, I could talk about Rodrigo DePaul all day long. He is one of my favorite Argentinian players for years. Like, it's not just this tournament. Like, DePaul has genuinely been a really, really top-notch Argentinian player for the last several years, but has not gotten the recognition he deserves. And he would definitely be a player I, I shut out. So those couple of players, is it even worth talking about like the performance Otamendi had in this final, which is <laughs> genuinely impressive <laughs> and, and one deserving of a starting spot in, oh my God, I can't or believe even, these words. Or even better, even better. Uh, I, I can't remember. Did he get the his, his tackle on Neymar? Oh my god, yeah. Where I can't remember who uh the midfielder was, the Argentinian midfielder that it was like two of them that ended up sandwiching yeah, Neymar. Yeah. But but uh Otamendi like takes Neymar out and like in the midst of this tackle, like swings his leg <laughs> like in, in the same area as as Neymar is like falling to the ground, obviously he like, doesn't hit him, but I'm positive he did that on purpose. Uh, but uh, I, you know what? I'm happy for him. <laughs> I'm happy for him. You know, <laughs> he's won his trophy too. He's cemented his own Argentinian legacy, <laughs> um, finding a way to be 
one of the two best center backs on this national team for almost a decade now. Uh, or no, 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 no. They were until like right after the world 2014 world cup since then, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, good for him. Good for him. Um, Amen. Just, <laughs> happy for him happy for uh leandro paredes because i remember i said after the semi-final i would love to see that see him start in the final as well yeah. and and i think that you know like i said before i think i think he provides some stability in the midfield especially you know the way that they were playing he had to he kind of had to be the the, the guy in midfield that to try to progress the ball forward and, and then try to just be a bit more of the orchestrator in that role, because obviously like the Paul was going to float and yeah. obviously so was Messi and so was Di Maria. <laughs> and so was Lautaro. Like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so he had a big responsibility in terms of in possession for the, for Argentina too. And, and I thought he performed well. So hundred percent. Yeah. I, I was genuinely very impressed with this Argentinian side overall, like throughout the tournament. And the one thing that I think that has been really, really different over the last seven plus years is this team feels genuinely like a group now. Like they feel like a team that's cohesive. And I have to shout out Scaloni for that because I don't think there's been another Argentinian manager in the mess that is has been the Argentinian FA, has been this footballing team. They've never gotten that right. Like they've never had a proper team that's built around Messi, not just Messi and friends. It's really <laughs> feeling like a team now that can go to the World Cup and, and push for something. Like they feel like they have an identity, right? Obviously, yeah. it's more counterattacking in nature. It's more direct. It's more route one. And it's not, you know, this beautiful progressive play, but it's a style that works for them. And you could see almost after every goal they've scored in this tournament, especially if they're leading, they have fully sat back into that mid block and used Lautaro, Messi, Di Maria, or obviously in, in the beginning of the tournament, Pablo Gomez to counterattack from there. And it, and it works because they catch their, their opponents out. So it genuinely feels like a solid side and I have to shout out Scaloni for that. And uh, it's just disappointing for Brazil, for Chichi, like first real major loss for him. First loss for Casemiro, I believe for this Brazilian side, wow. He's never, he has never lost a game for Brazil. Um, so all in all, a lot of different records broken. <laughs> and, and another record, Fred looking consistently good for like six straight games in a tournament in any setting, in any setting. Yeah. In any setting. Not, I was going to say a tournament, but in any setting, honestly. Um, so props to him, props to him. But that again, you know, shows us exactly what is wrong at Manchester United. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's just when you put Fred with a good holding midfielder, he's going to look not a Pogba, lot better. By the way. That's yes, which is yeah, which is just not Paul Pogba, of course. Or, yeah. or Scott McCominay, like neither of those. <laughs> um, but yeah, no props, props to Fred there. I, I think what my, my last thing in terms of um, what this means maybe for, for Qatar, for the Qatar World Cup, now that's going to be played in a very, very warm climate. Yeah. Right? Which, yeah. So you could expect, I think what was it when Germany won in 2014? They were, I think, still the first European side to ever win in South America, ever win the uh, World Cup in South America, uh, or outside of Europe, even. I think, mm-hmm. 
it's so there's that's still kind of a thing for for these european teams like playing in the climate and, and so I, I think that is something to think about too going to that tournament that generally like these south american sides perform better than the europeans in those in, in those climates uh so i'm wondering I, I and i genuinely don't know the answer to this so i have to look it up if if some of these stadiums are going to be temperature controlled because i can only I, well, assume I, yeah i would expect they they will have to be right but unless they all have roofs like that's still going to be some element right yeah. Of, uh, of, yeah of the of the weather outside of the stadium right for sure yeah that's the only thing that uh that i would think about i and i also don't know the answer to the question i i'm already pissed off that it's a in the winter and b in qatar so that alone is there's a whole issue but <laughs> to your point i think this does set up well for for argentina brazil those teams in south america for the world cup like i feel like there's more momentum there in some cases than there are in some of the european teams because we saw really italy is the is the only like the only one strong side that has come out and built on their performance from the beginning of the tournament to the end England in some capacity definitely did, but it felt like they started well and ended well. Right. Like they didn't generally, you know, improve or get worse. Like they're very much in line. And I feel like with some of these other sides in both South America and maybe Denmark could be the other argument Europe, like we didn't see much, growth or, or confidence being built and that that would be a worry for me um but uh, we could have a completely different opinion on this in yeah here. like yeah. It, so it very it, much we still have to qualify change. yeah we we, we yeah. won't really know like you said the momentum of these teams until next spring probably yep. so yeah the last thing rion before we wrap up the pod does this change how like you personally, not necessarily like you in general, but you personally view, you know, Messi's legacy. Like, I feel like that has always been the biggest talking point. Like, how does this now affect how people talk about him or how you talk about him? I think for, from my perspective, I, I don't think it changes much. I think that this is the cherry on top that, uh, of, of a Sunday, honestly, like, <laughs> it, it's still great. It's still like the ice cream still tastes great. The sprinkles, wonderful. The, the whipped cream, everything, chocolate sauce, all complement each other perfectly. <laughs> but you add that little cherry on top and it's like, this is now perfect. This is now all, as yeah. close to perfect as it could get. And um, I, I know, I, I know I said that the world cup <laughs> thing, but you know, it's, it's, it's still making a world cup final is, is a huge achievement, obviously. Right, and, and, right. um, and winning the golden boot as he did in that tournament, like that's it's still just so, so massive achievements. It, it's, it's really just nice to, to see that he has now won almost everything um, yeah. that he can. And, and, it, it it was such a weight off of his shoulders and you can tell at the final whistle. So um, legacy wise, it doesn't, it doesn't change it very much. He's still the best soccer player I've ever seen play the sport in my life. So, yeah. um, and, and it's hard for me to, to, to imagine anyone being a more technically gifted player than he um, is or, or anyone will be honestly. So true words have never been spoken, my friend. So, I will, uh, I'll stop talking about Messi there. I think everyone knows how I feel about this, about him, about the way that this tournament has gone. Tears, man, tears. That's what came out of my eyes on Saturday. It's just like, it, just pure happiness. So 
Well, I think that wraps up the pod, Rian. We talked a lot about a lot. We, we made it through, um, but we'll be back hopefully sooner rather than later talking a little bit about the rest of the summer. What's going on? Which players are going to where? And uh, preseason is really not that far away. It basically starts next week for a lot of clubs. <laughs> so we'll be back soon. Thanks, guys.